Today I'm interviewing Lisa Schlossberg and she has so many certifications and trainings. She's just incredible. But I want to share from the heart that Lisa is an incredible heart-centered coach and helps people with emotional eating. And so many people talk about emotional eating in so many different ways, but I feel that Lisa really does it in the most profound way that gets right to the in-depth reason why people do it. And as a former super emotional eater myself, I can tell you that her work is completely transformational and will completely shift your relationship with food. So even if you don't feel like you're an emotional eater, listen to this episode, examine your relationship with food, and I promise you, you're going to have so many incredible insights. Let's dive in. Welcome to Deep Within. On this show, we dive deep into the nervous system, emotional healing, and transformation from within the body. When I started my personal development journey, it was all in the mind, doing affirmations, visualizations, listening to endless motivational videos. And I found that this approach without actually getting my body on board only left me in deeper shame and distress. So this is actually how I discovered somatic body-based healing. My name is Marina Yanai Triner, and I am the Compassionate Somatic Coach. I am gentle, sensitive, and I love deep conversations. I am so, so, so excited and so glad you're here so we can feel like we're together in our own little bubble of deep talks. Hello, Lisa. I'm super, super excited to see you, to talk to you. You are my second guest on the show, which is so cool. And I've just loved your work so much, especially about emotional eating. I feel like you have such a fresh approach because everything I always hear about is like restrict yourself and force yourself and like control your habits. So I'm really, really excited to talk to you about your approach. So first, please share with us how you got started in this field. Cool. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm very honored to be here. I feel like when you and I talk about things, it's so I'm in the presence of someone so like-minded. So it's always just a pleasure to have a conversation. How did I get started doing what I'm doing? Well, I work with people who are struggling with emotional eating or any kind of, I always put it in quotes, disordered eating. So that could be overeating, undereating, picky eating, restrictive eating, mindless eating. There's all kinds of things that really show up as a disruption, I will say, in our relationship with food. So that's who I work with. How I got started doing what I'm doing, I will give you the very brief version and I'll, I'll let you have the follow-up questions, if any. Um... I was very overweight according to the BMI chart and the medical model my whole childhood. So I was just over 300 pounds when I was 17 years old. And then when I went to college, I went on a diet and I lost a lot of weight. Um, and that was 10 years ago. So I lost 150 pounds when I was in college. And I learned in that process after the weight came off my body is when things got very interesting. Because at that point, I thought, kind of like you said, I was thinking I would restrict myself around food, I would lose the weight, and then that would be the end of the story. And it was going to be that simple, and I would be done forever. And it actually did not work that way at all. When I 
finished my weight loss, I was physically in a place of starvation and malnutrition. And then mentally and emotionally really struggling with disordered eating, if not an eating disorder. So that was really the beginning of a wake-up call for me where I had to learn and get curious about how can I maintain my weight loss while also kind of reconnecting with and reestablishing my mental and emotional and spiritual health. So I shifted my priority from my weight, the number on the scale, my body size, the pants I was wearing, to my health and really seeing myself as a mind, body, soul being, starting to treat myself holistically. Um, so a lot of that for me was learning how to feel my feelings, not eat them. I learned in this process that I grew up an emotional eater. Many of us are emotional eaters, whether we're conscious of it or not. But as a kid, once I started looking back on my childhood and understanding what my relationship with food was really like without any of the shame or judgment or any of that stuff, when I could just look at it honestly, it was very clear to me that I was using food like a drug to numb myself and dissociate and stuff it all down. And so a lot of the way that I've practiced maintaining my weight is not restricting anything I eat or getting on the scale. I don't know the last time I've done that, but really through learning how to feel my feelings and receive support and all, you know, a lot of different holistic approaches, somatic experiencing, mindset shifts, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that is how and why I do what I do today. <laughs> I love that story. And immediately I was so curious about why do you think, I, I'm going to say my answer, but then I'm curious for your answer. Why do you think that when you sort of stopped obsessing over the food stuff, then all the mental health and the emotional health came up? Do you think it's because you were using food to kind of distract from that? And even when you lost weight and you, you were just done focusing on the numbers and the food and all that, and then those things actually came up. Yeah. So I, the way that I understand it is when I look back from five to 18, let's say, my way of coping with feelings was underneath the food and the eating was denial, avoidance, and just pretending. I'm fine. I don't need anyone. Nothing bothers me. I'm strong enough to get through it alone. So just this general relationship with life and feelings and spirituality, spirituality did not exist on my radar at all whatsoever. We're not, we're not there yet. But when it came to emotions, it was always just denial and avoidance and defense. So I lived in a place of defense. And so I understand now that the way that I maintained that was using food to stuff it all down. So when a thought came up that was uncomfortable or a feeling came up that was uncomfortable, when there was stress, trauma, emotion that I did not know how to cope with, food helped me just stuff it down and really avoid it and not deal with it. So then when I lost weight, the way that I, again, understand it now is that I swung the pendulum from overeating to undereating. And instead of ever questioning, how did I gain all this weight to begin with? Why am I eating? Am I hungry? What's going on inside? Because that would require me to no longer be dissociated and actually connect back into my body. 
I swung the pendulum so that 99% of my thoughts were about what I was eating, how much I was eating, how many calories I put in, how many calories I put out, how many steps I took. And it was just another form of keeping myself distracted and disconnected from what was going on inside. So ultimately, I was living in my head. I was calculating and and processing just numbers and math all the time about everything I ate, every step I took. But I still wasn't feeling my feelings. I wasn't present with myself. I wasn't in my body. I was still completely disconnected just now in a very different way and in a much more socially acceptable way. So there was a lot of praise and reward and validation that I was doing something so great, but at no point did it reconnect me with myself. So then at the end of that, now I couldn't use, the way that it felt to me was I couldn't use under eating anymore and an obsession with restriction or control um, around food because that landed me in starvation and malnourishment. My hair was falling out. I lost my period. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't poop. I, my body was not functioning. And it took it. There's so many things I want to say. But but one of the things I want to say is that I went to four different doctors and all of them said, congratulations on your weight loss. This is the healthiest you've ever been. So I just kept getting kind of like I was falling through the cracks of the medical model. And it didn't make sense to me why I was dizzy all the time and nauseous and fatigued. And I just, I remember I was in college. I couldn't memorize anything. I couldn't study anymore. It felt like my brain and my body just stopped working. And I didn't know why, because my whole life as a kid, I was taught eat less, exercise more. So I did. And I just did it really, really well because I was an A plus gold star student. And I know how to work really hard when I'm given instructions. So all of that to say, at the end of my weight loss, I was in a place where I was so unhealthy, mentally, emotionally, and physically, that I couldn't turn to this obsessive relationship I had with food and eating to cope anymore. And I also couldn't turn to overeating and stuffing it all down if I wanted to maintain my weight anyway. So it became like the safety blankets were taken away. And I compare myself sometimes to like Glennon Doyle, who talks about in her TED Talk, Her for her, it was an eating disorder, drugs, alcohol. Cool. She calls them capes because they kept her feeling safe. And so she talks about this phenomenon of when you take your capes off and you have to identify not just as Superman, but Clark Kent, right? Like telling the truth about what's underneath all of that. That's when all the emotion starts coming up. And that was a huge awakening for me because I started seeing how parallel my story was with people who were going through recovery and abstaining from other drugs, alcohol, behaviors, substances. And I started to understand that my relationship with food mirrored in a lot of ways the, the relationship that some people have with drugs and alcohol and other things. Um, so that's how I understand it is like underneath all of that stuff. You know, when I had to kind of put those things down, whether it was food and eating or dieting and weight loss, the the emotional upheaval was inevitable. Um, and it, it certainly was. And is that emotional upheaval around whatever is around your relationship with food or is it other things or both? Yeah, it's a good question. It's both. 
I think it's inevitably both because our relationship with food is a mirror to our relationship with ourself, period. Um, and so for me, you know, my relationship with food to begin with was very dissociative. I was mindless. I had no, you, you could ask me at night what I ate that morning. I wouldn't know, truly. My relationship with food was I eat what I want, when I want, whenever I want. And I didn't understand why people had a problem with that. My doctors, my parents, I wanted everyone to leave me alone. It was just so mindless. Like I couldn't be present with it. What is that mirroring to me? I wasn't being present with myself. I wasn't, I didn't know what, what I was thinking, what I was feeling, what I needed. I was completely out of touch. And so that was mirrored to me in my relationship with food. And then on the other side of things, then what does it become? I'm crazy controlling over it, right? And so instead of just like restricting and controlling my food intake, it's also, you know, a thought comes up. Oh, I'm not going to think that. I'm going to control my way out of this experience. A feeling comes up. Oh, no, no. I'm just going to work really hard and get away from it, right? It's very controlling. And so I saw the way that, you know, compared to more so now, when my relationship with food and eating reflects to me the relationship I have with myself in a general sense that is open, free, flexible, spontaneous, curious, like connected, you know, all of those things. So I think on one hand, it is always inevitably about the food, even though it's actually never about the food. Um, and then on the other hand, for me, uh, there's so many things I could say to this too, but it was really about looking back on what was my relationship with food like growing up and how did my relationship with food become so emotionally charged. And, and so part of it was very literally going back to five years old when the big T trauma in my life and my family happened. And I will never forget one time when my mom and I were going through old pictures and she showed me a picture and said, this is the year that you started gaining weight, like really started gaining weight. And I said, was it 1998? That was the year that my sister died. And it was like, yes, of course it was. And so for the first few years of my life, it wasn't really a thing, but then it kind of, my weight started kind of skyrocketing. And so it was a lot of not just looking at the relationship with food, but really going back to how long has this been true? why is this true? What happened, right? We talk about instead of what's wrong with you, what happened to you? And I started to question, how did I, how did I get here? You know, and again, like I said, without any judgment, without any shame, without buying into the story that I am bad or doing something wrong, just curiosity around how I got here. Then it started to make sense. Like, of course, of course, this was, you know, food was my friend food was where I found comfort and safety and support when everyone else in my family was also grieving and coping and just doing their best and I kind of got lost in the crowd as a little kid I was five years old so I would say both mm. yeah yeah that's very relatable I think to so many people and I'm just trying to picture this journey of yours from food is my friend, food is here to comfort me, to food is an enemy sort of, or like something to like work against, to then like now. So can you yeah. sort of share 
all of that roller coaster because <laughs> I definitely know that feeling of like almost fear around food. And yeah. I'm just so curious because sometimes people really think black and white, like food is an enemy and then the next day all is well, you know, it's great. And I, I am sure that you still have days when food is a very good friend or food is a great enemy. So can you mm -hmm. share like that journey and also where you're at now? Yeah. What a question. <laughs> so I think the best way that I can explain this, what I'm thinking of right now is one of the slides that I created that is part of the curriculum for the group program that I teach. And I'm thinking of this because it's called, so imagine like on the top of the slide, it's called addiction or dieting addiction. And I use the word addiction the way Gabor Mate talks about it. That is this kind of compulsive need to do something regardless of the long-term side effects or the long-term harm that it might be doing and the inability to stop. So sometimes when it comes to something like dieting, it becomes very addictive. So, you know, I talk to people all the time who are like, I can't stop counting calories or I hate going on a diet, but I can't stop doing it, right? It becomes very addictive the same way getting on the scale, right? Some of us have an addictive relationship with getting on the scale. And so we're not talking about addiction and the hard and fast black and white kind of rule, but we're talking about it as this kind of compulsive energy around a behavior. And so I start there because the way that I understood my experience, and I teach it now because it's so resonant with so many people, is when I first started my weight loss, it's almost like, now I'm going to go back and just talk a little bit about brain science because it's important to understand how this works neurobiologically. When it comes to food and eating, two of the four happy chemicals in our brain, dopamine and serotonin, are released every single time we eat anything because we are human beings and we are designed to survive on food. So we have that reward center experience when we eat. The same reason that sex feels good is because we're designed to reproduce is the reason that food feels good. We need motivation to eat it. Okay, so the happy chemicals are released in our brain every time we eat food. So that in very, very brief explains why we are emotional eaters. When our stress gets too high, when our emotions get too low, we need something to even out and find that kind of equilibrium just in terms of the neurobiology. So it's really no question. I always say like, if you recognize that you are an emotional eater, it means that you are a human being. Your mind-body system is working properly. It is appropriate. It is valid. It is normal. It is human. It's actually really good news. It means you're not broken, not that you are broken. So that's that. But then what I think is very interesting is the way that your brain really takes into account your conscious input. And what that means is when I decide that my goal is to lose weight, Okay, so then what happens? Like what happens neurobiologically? Well, if I set the goal to weight loss and then I see that I'm losing weight, I'm achieving my goal. Dopamine, serotonin, the happy chemicals are back. But now the happy chemicals are coming from a new source. They're coming from the fact that I am choosing to not eat dessert after dinner and I am choosing no dressing on my salad. And every single time I do something that I consciously perceive to be good or right, ding, 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 ding. It's just like another release of the happy chemicals. And that's why it can be so addictive, right? You, If you're listening to this, right, you could probably relate on some level to that feeling of 
I'm doing good. I'm doing it right. I'm on track. Like I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to do and how good that feels. And so even though consciously I was really starved and malnourished, what was going on in my brain was this like slot machine every minute of the day. Every time I chose to not eat something, every time my pants got a little bit looser, every single time at a certain point I looked in the mirror. I remember at a certain point I lost weight so rapidly when I was typing on the keyboard, I would see my hands and it would like freak me out that I could see the bones in my fingers because I, I, I was so, my body was so unfamiliar to me. But what I'm saying is it was like this constant influx of dopamine, 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 dopamine all day long. So it's not even so much that the food and the eating became an enemy when it was a friend. It was that a new friend came along. <laughs> And then that's what was serving me and that's what was making me feel better. And that's what was keeping me so disconnected from myself. So I never, or I won't say never, but it didn't, it didn't begin with food as bad or food as the enemy or food as something that was scary or fearful. It just became something that I needed to restrict in order to keep getting this hit. And I kept getting the hit so much so that it got really extreme. And I remember like, again, I speak to an endocrinologist after I tried all these doctors and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with my body. And I remember him just saying to me, you know, if you feel so bad all the time, how do you go to the gym every day? And my, my, my answer to that was very simply, you do what you got to do. Like, you just do what you got to do. And I say that because it speaks to how disconnected I was from my body, that I was not sleeping. I was not functioning. I could barely like get through the day, but I forced myself to work out every single day. And the reason that that happens is because I wasn't in my body enough to even feel how fatigued and terrible it was. I was just living off of this next hit, next hit, next hit in my brain. And I think that's how it sometimes happens for people where you don't even know that you're struggling with disordered eating because you feel great. But underneath all of that is like, how does your body feel, you know, and, what, and what's going on on a deeper level. But so that is how I come to see it and understand it now. And that's certainly how it worked for me. Um, and then just to speak to the last part of the question that is like, well, how did I get to where I am now, which is in a very different place? Um, I certainly went through periods of time where food was, I don't know, it doesn't even resonate so much to say food is an enemy. It didn't feel that way. It just felt like food is something that I had to be in control of. And I didn't, not so much that I felt like I was fighting it, but I had to control it so that it wouldn't control me. Um, and it took a while of, honestly, abstinence and exposure therapy. And what that means for me is I had to get rid of the scale, 
Like I had to very consciously choose, right? I had to look at some of the things that were addictions to me at that point, under eating, calorie counting, getting on the scale, exercise. I had to treat those things like addiction, meaning I had to put myself through abstinence and withdrawal. And so I had to stop getting on the scale. I had to stop going on diets. I had to stop counting everything I was eating. And that was part of it. But the other part of it was learning how to cope with all the feelings that came up in that withdrawal. So instead of turning to controlling it or numbing it, I had to learn how to actually feel stuff. And that's where, again, the emotional upheaval kind of comes in. But that that's taken so many forms over the years. It's going to therapy. It's crying about things, not judging myself or having feelings, coming back inside my body, realizing emotions are thing, are energy that lives inside. So, you know, all the work you do and are so familiar with of just coming back inside the body and allowing feelings to exist and belong and move and be. And again, that can happen in so many different ways, but ultimately focusing on mental and emotional, spiritual and social health and physical health. It's not about neglecting that, um, but it's about balancing all of that for just overall mind, body, soul, health and well-being. Um, so I think that's how I would answer that question. <laughs> I love that. That I feel like I learned so much just listening to you. And I love that on this podcast and in your work, we go deep deep within and you know deep to the core of things and I think you said something really important enough like you were dissociated I think that was a protection right people don't realize that being dissociated is actually protecting you from dealing with trauma around food or otherwise so yeah. that's where the core of every addiction is really trauma and I know a lot of people, or I've seen, I don't know if I know them, but I've seen a lot of people who are like, you know, eat at this time or eat this much or eat this thing. And then you will change your relationship to food or you lose weight or whatever, whatever. And it works for some people, right? They have millions of followers. Like people say, this program changed my life. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that more for like just people listening to this and for their mind to receive some information about how long does that work or why do why does it work and why is your approach different and why is your approach uh, the way i see it is much more profound and in-depth and lasting yes again what a question so the first thing is um anything can work temporarily Right. Like anything can work. Temporary. You can. And the way that I sometimes explain it is, you know, we think about I think about everything from a mind body perspective. Like I'm all about the brain science. So I think about how, you know, technically, like you could run from a tiger. You have to run from a tiger in certain circumstances, but you can't run from a tiger forever. Like you can't keep that up. And so it's a similar thing where let's use the the example of being on a twelve hundred calorie diet which no one should ever be, right? But it's like, if you stick to, or even let's say a thousand calories, just make it easy to roll off the tongue. You stick to a thousand calories a day. For example, you could do that. You do that for a few days. You do that for a week. And you know what? You will probably see the scale, the number on the scale go down. That's not a mystery and it's not magic. It's just how it happens. But 
what we have to consider is that when you are in such a deficit like that and you're not taking into account how you feel, right? How do you feel when you eat a thousand calories a day? Miserable, <laughs> exhausted, stressed out, irritable, right? When you are in complete denial of how you feel, maybe you can power through that for a little bit. But if you want this to be lifelong, sustainable, healthy, aligned, connected, safe, it's not going to work that way because here's why. Again, brain science is like the backbone of all of this. When you are in such a deficit like that and or maybe you're not in so much of a deficit physically, but mentally you are thinking about every day, all day long, your conscious input is I can't eat that. I shouldn't eat that. I'm not allowed to eat that. That's too much, right? When the messages that you are sending to your brain are really communicating scarcity, what happens is your brain thinks that you are in a famine. It doesn't know about your wedding dress. It doesn't know about your jeans. It doesn't know. It doesn't know about this human life that you're living where you want your body to be a certain size. It doesn't know about any of that. The only thing your animal brain knows is are you in safety or are you in danger? That is it. This is the part of our brain that we share with a lizard. So it's not thinking about your weight loss goals. It's not thinking about your 30 day challenge. All it knows is, do we have the resources we need to survive or not? Period. The end. So when all day it's getting the message that it doesn't have what you need because you need food to survive, whether you like it or not, when the message is that you don't have what you need to survive or it's scarce, resources are scarce, your brain thinks you're in a famine. Okay, well, you can exist in a famine for a little bit of time. You, we're animals okay so you exist in a famine for a little bit of time maybe it's a few days maybe it's a few months maybe it's a few you know weeks whatever it is you do that for a little bit but then <laughs> then what happens you reach your goal weight and you put your pants on and the wedding dress fits the way you want it to and then what happens you communicate to your brain that the famine is over now we can eat again. Now we can introduce carbs back into our diet. Now we don't have to calorie count anymore. We made it. We've arrived. And again, you and your human brain are like, this is awesome. I achieved my goal and I feel great. And what happens in your animal brain is your animal brain is like, okay, so we made it through the famine. Is that correct? And you're like, yes, we did it. And your brain is like, okay, great. So I... I'm going to do you a huge favor because my job as your brain is to protect you and keep you safe. Back to the same thing, right? Dissociation, protection. Your brain is wired to keep you safe. And so your brain does this thing where it says, I'm going to do you a huge favor, not because you asked for it and not because you like it, not because you want it, but I know the best and I'm going to do you a huge favor. And I'm going to not just restore your body from the horrible famine that you just had to go through. I'm actually going to do you one better and I'm going to pack on more weight to your innocent animal body for the next famine that you have to go through. And so when people experience successful, immediate, rapid, effective weight loss, there's never a question involved. It's like, yeah, you followed the plan. You got the weight off your body. Of course you did. But we're not asking then what? We're not asking what comes after, right? You do a 30-day challenge. What about day 31, right? You get into your wedding dress. What about after the wedding? Like our body isn't going anywhere. Our relationship with food isn't going anywhere. And most importantly, I would argue, our animal brain isn't going anywhere. And it's never going to stop trying to save your life. 
So that's usually what happens is then, right, we lose the weight, we gain it back. We think it's our fault, like we're doing something wrong. Then we go through the shame spiral of judging ourselves, thinking we have no willpower, thinking we're failures. None of that is true. It has never been true. It is part of the diet culture, the diet industry, the whole like give us your money and we'll take the problem away thing. It's not true. It's not rooted in how the mind-body system actually works. But then we go through, you know, years, decades, if not an entire lifetime of yo-yo dieting for that reason. We lose it. We gain it back. We lose it. We gain it back. Believing that it's us that's the problem the whole time. And it's just absolutely not true. So that's important to understand when it comes to like, why do things happen the way they happen? Why are things effective until they're not? Why is it possible to follow a program or a plan? And then all of a sudden, right, we feel like we have no more willpower and we have no more discipline. And I have to say, I went through the same exact thing. I lost all my weight. And then I got to a point where I was trying to eat a little bit more, exercise a little bit less, and I was completely out of control. And I would gain 10, lose 15, gain 20, lose 20, gain 25. And I was just making my way back up the weight chart. And I was really scared because I remember thinking I felt so, I had so much willpower and so much discipline to lose weight the way that I did. What's going on here? And instead of like, I think this is important because instead of going the path that I think a lot of people go where they assume or they believe based on what they've been taught that they are the problem, right? Most people gain the weight back and they say, I have no willpower, no willpower, no control, no discipline. I'm the problem. I'm broken. I'm a failure. But at that point in my journey, and I think some of this is just my tendency toward denial. Like I was like, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think that doesn't make sense to me. And I just remember thinking, if 98% of people who lose weight that the way that I did gain it back plus some, it doesn't make sense to me that all of us just wake up one day and have no more willpower. Like what is going on here? And I just went the route of curiosity and like trying to get to the bottom of it. And that's where I started doing a lot of research. And I, and I found things like the adverse childhood experience study and like all these things that opened my eyes to the mind-body connection that could make sense out of why we lose it and gain it and lose it and gain it and sometimes never come off that treadmill. Um, so I think that probably answers the question. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And can you talk a little bit about that study and just, yeah, this mind-body connection and how yeah. the body plays a role. I mean, obviously the body plays a role in terms of the weight gain, the weight loss, but we cannot just willpower it through our mind, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you for asking. So the Adverse Childhood Experience Study, also known as the ACE study, um, came out in 1997. And the reason it was such a big deal was because the way the ACE study works is there is an ACE questionnaire of 10 questions, 10 what we would call the big T traumas. And so it was screening people for abuse, neglect, a parent dying early on, being imprisoned, things like that. And what they found in the ACE study, that was, I believe, 30,000 adults in the United States. Um, what it found kind of across the board was a connection between early childhood experiences, early adverse childhood experiences, 
and different health issues later in life. And this was really remarkable as a finding at first because a lot of the things that we associate with being physical health issues, so heart disease, liver, stroke, and addiction, all these kinds of things, actually nine out of the 10 leading causes of death were looked at with the ACE study. And there was a correlation between things that happen later in life in our physical health and what was going on in our childhood, in our immediate environment. And so I don't even remember how I got myself into finding the ACE study, but I do remember that it it literally changed the trajectory of my entire life. And I remember sitting with the CDC website and I was reading through all of this. And what was really interesting to me was finding, oh, there's so much I want to say, was finding that our relationship with addiction can be really understood through something like the ACE study. And what that means is, instead of, again, asking the question, what's wrong with this person? Why can't this person just stop drinking alcohol? Why can't this person just put down the cigarettes? What's wrong with them? The ACE study was actually the beginning of really revolutionizing addiction treatment because it started to take into, into account not what's wrong with this person, what happened to this person? What was going on when they were children? What was going on in their immediate environment? What kind of big T and little t traumas was this person experiencing that now later in life they're struggling with addiction? And so one of the first things I found was that. But the second thing, I just remember this so distinctly. At the bottom of the page, there were all these things that it talked about in terms of health issues. And then at the very bottom of the page, there was an, an asterisk. And it said, for more, click here. And I clicked there. And what it opened up was a page on eating disorders and obesity and how all of that worked exactly the same way. And there was a large you know, body of research at this point that connected early childhood experiences, adverse childhood experiences, trauma as children with being overweight and struggling with eating disorders. And like, I literally remember exactly where I was sitting when I found this, because I remember thinking, now all of this makes sense. Like my entire life and my entire relationship with food makes so much sense when I look at it from this perspective, right? The diet culture messaging didn't resonate. It just didn't land. But this was something that made a lot of sense. And there was evidence, there was research, there were studies, like I went down the rabbit hole. Furthermore, I think this is also really important. When I started looking into that, I also found the origin of the ACE study. So Vincent Felitti, who's the one who put this whole thing together, it actually started with he was doing medically supervised weight loss and he was working with people who were two, three, four, five hundred pounds overweight. And at a certain point, he started seeing things that didn't really make sense to him in his practice as a medical doctor. People would lose a lot of weight and then pull out of the study or people didn't even want to participate in the study, things like that. And so he was thinking of it the way many of us would, that is like, if this is effective weight loss, why don't you want it? Or why don't you want to continue it? Or why don't you want to maintain it? And he worked with one person who lost over 100 pounds and gained 37 pounds back in three weeks. And as a medical doctor, I've heard him, like I've listened to this interview many times where he says, I didn't even know that that was physiologically possible. And so he started interviewing his patients 
really just getting again like out of the physical dimension into mental emotional like what's going on here with the human being and he started putting together that this one woman was kind of what tipped him off but this one woman explained that she was hit on by a coworker, and in his interview got to discovering that she had a whole history of sexual abuse from her grandfather and that was what like tipped him off so he started doing more and more interviews with his patients and finding a lot of the people who gained, who lost weight and gained it back or lost weight and pulled out of the study had a whole history of sexual abuse, trauma, neglect, things like that. He starts putting that together. So now we're really speaking to the mind-body connection, specifically around obesity. Then Felitti takes his findings to, I don't remember exactly what it was called. In my podcast episode about it, I have exactly what it was, but it's like the board of obesity or you know some some medical um association and he presented his findings and at first what they told him was you are naive to believe your patients your patients have no willpower your patients have no discipline and they're coming up with excuses and you as a medical doctor are naive to believe them and then as the story goes someone pulled him aside kind of after this meeting and said People aren't listening to you because you don't have enough of a sample size. You only have a few hundred patients. You need thousands of patients. And that was the origin of the ACE study. So when I put all of this together, it was like, it felt to me like the story that the diet industry doesn't want you to know. And it was like, this is what the culture you know, it like, is anyone talking about this? Like everyone who struggles with food and eating and weight and disordered eating and body image, it's like, how are we not educated about this? Because from this perspective, it all makes so much sense. We're not doing anything wrong. We are not broken. There's nothing wrong with us. We are not defective. This is exactly how it it's works. It's the opposite where this is how we're normal. Exactly. And it reminds me of like a good friend of mine. And I shared this on on a podcast episode with her too. When we're talking about it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. She said, it's actually one step further than that. It's not what's wrong with you. It's what's right with you. And understanding how food and eating the same way, dissociation, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, it's actually about what's right with you. And when we're coming from that perspective, it's like, oh, <laughs> all of this makes so much sense. So that, for me, is what's important about the ACE study and what that means and how that contributed to my own understanding and education and empowerment to heal myself without, um, you know, getting lost and distracted in the story that I am broken and I am the problem because that's it's just so literally neurobiologically not true <laughs> i i love your excitement about it because this is exactly how i felt when i found somatics you know just like oh this is <laughs> you know this is what it is like this is the root because yes. we as humans we don't want to go to the root because it's uncomfortable so as we wrap up i just really want to hear what you teach in your group program which is open for enrollment and what are sort of the main, like, really biggest tools in these categories that you mentioned, physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, that you help people with? Mm. Uh, 
such a good question and so much to say. So the way that I think about it or the way that I've designed the program, so it's 12 modules and they are really in-depth um, education. I always say psychoeducation is the backbone of this program. And you can probably tell by listening to all this why. Like there's so much we need to understand in terms of the brain science, in terms of the culture, the mind-body connection. How is it all working? I always say it's kind of like we were born into these bodies and we're all out here like driving this car, but we were never given the manual to understand like how it actually works. So I actually sometimes think of my program as like the manual, like this is what's going on and you need to fuel yourself in order to drive your car. We need to have a relationship with food, right? It's not going anywhere. So we have to understand all the different components of it. Having said that, food is obviously mental, emotional, spiritual, social, cultural, ancestral, financial. It's it's so many different things. And so if we're just looking at <laughs> calories in, calories out, you can see there's so much that we're neglecting that we're, we're not getting to. So the way that I've designed the program is the first, I think about it in thirds. The first third is really dedicated to answering the question, how did we get here? So I always say like, you're a human being, you survive on food, right? We're intuitive eaters by default, by design. So how did we actually arrive at a place where you're a fully grown adult and your relationship with food is confusing or stressful or emotional or just unclear and causing you some chaos or conflict? How did we get here? Like, how do we, how do we understand that? So the first third of the program is really unpacking that. So part of that is understanding you are a mind, mind, body, soul system of energy. So what does that mean? Well, you're a spiritual being having a physical experience, not a physical being having a spiritual experience. You are a soul. You have a body. It's not that you are a body and have a soul. So first, we have to start with just an understanding and a reorientation of what it is to be a human being. I would say you're a spiritual being having a physical experience but you also have an animal brain and you live in a social context and you survive on food. So we have to take all of this into account in order for you to understand how to sustainably and safely make any kind of shift. That's just the beginning. Then there's a lot of brain science. Like I said, the neurobiology of food and eating and our relationship with it. We unpack the culture, everything from the diet culture to the anti-diet culture. There's a lot of voices and messages out there. But if it's not yours, I'm not interested in it. So we have to get really back in touch with how we got here. That's the first third of the program. The second third is how do we get out? So if this isn't working for us and we don't like the way that this feels where we currently are, what do we do differently? How do we shift the priorities? How do we change? So a lot of that is the mindset work, literally how to think about food and how to feed yourself from the psychology of feeding perspective. So it's not just the food and the eating. But part of that is we will talk about nutrition because you have to understand, again, how food works. Then the psychology of feeding, shifting the focus from our weight to our holistic health, what that looks like. So speaking to all areas of health, mental, emotional, spiritual, social, environmental, and physiological, right? We're talking about somatics. And then shifting into the final third is how do we maintain it? How do we sustain it? And so part of that is really something I always saying it's not about what you're doing it's about the energy with which you do it so we have to talk about the energy the energetics the 
somatics really of the experience because whether you're eating a salad because you know it's going to support you and there's a lot of nutrients in it or you're eating a salad because you hate what you look like and feel insecure those are two very different energies that are going to have everything to do with what that experience is actually like so that's where we start talking about the energy but as well as resistance feeling feelings how to be in your body setting boundaries codependency exercise body image all all of the things and ultimately um relapse and recovery because you have a lifelong relationship with food this isn't going anywhere so arming you with how to um cope with sit with get back on track when you feel yourself kind of relapsing or struggling with recovery um so it's really <laughs> depthful it's really um there's a lot of information because it addresses all of those parts of health all of those kinds of health so that you can feel like you're on the journey with yourself moving forward i always say like my position here is to support you in getting back in the driver's seat so that at the end of this program i'm in the passenger seat and you get to drop me off because now you have the manual you know how to drive the car and you know what feels good and you know how to you know, like it when you get off the road, you get back on. But it's not about me being the expert and having all the answers. It's really supporting you with the education and the connection and the support and the skills that you need to to safely and sustainably drive your car for the rest of your life. <laughs> it sounds amazing. And of course, Thank I'm going to put the link to it and all of Lisa's links for everybody. And just quickly, if people are listening to this and they're recognizing, like, I'm struggling with this, and underneath it all is really how you mentioned my relationship with my emotions, where do they start? What is maybe like one tool? I know I talk about it a lot in my podcast, but I think we all have so many different approaches to this. One yeah. tool that people can start with to work through their emotions as connected to their relationship with food. Yeah. So I think a great place for people to start is something like mindful eating. So I say that because it can give you an idea of, you know, a lot of us struggle with something like mindful eating, which is really just, again, connecting your mind to your body for the practice of eating. So a lot of us, right, it's like we'll be eating while we're driving or eating, watching TV or eating scrolling right we're always kind of like multitasking and so I find that it can be very helpful and clarifying and really eye-opening to just kind of start there and what that means is just taking five to ten seconds because a lot of us feel so uncomfortable just sitting still and slowing down and so that can give you an example or give you an idea of a lot of us will look at our relationship with food and say, I struggle with food and eating. But underneath that, you're not really struggling with food and eating. It's just that you're not even in your body for the practice of feeding yourself. So how can you know hungry and full if you're scrolling and watching something and moving all at the same time, right? So, so I say that as an invitation to just start there. That is what happens if you slow down and just practice being still it could be five seconds. It could be 10 seconds. This is where it's really like the exposure therapy of it might be really uncomfortable to slow down and be still. But if what we're struggling with is food, to me, that's usually an indication that we're just not present in our bodies. 
And that's where we want to start to rebuild that mind-body connection so we can access and honor things like hunger and fullness. So that's one, that for me is like a way in. And then from that place, you know, if you notice that you slow down to eat and you feel really anxious, right? Or you feel really uncomfortable and now there's like the jitters in your body and the pins and needles, right? That's where... I think the tool, the first tool is non-judgmental awareness. Because the first thing I think for many of us is judgment. We judge and shame and blame ourselves. What's wrong with me that I can't sit still? What's wrong with me that I feel all these feelings when I just turn the TV off, right? There's nothing wrong with you. They're brilliant. They're coping mechanisms. They're defense. They're, they're amazing. And they're serving you. But so the first thing is expecting it and not judging it and not trying to get out of it and instead just stepping back, practicing, I always say stepping into the role of the observer, just starting with the observation, no judgment at all. When I slow down to eat food, I feel really anxious. Okay, okay. Can you notice that and meet yourself there and just start there because we can't do anything that we're not aware of. So that I think is often overlooked as a tool, but I would argue probably the most powerful thing you could do because from that place of observation and non-judgment, what you're doing is creating safety, again, to your brain. You're communicating safety to your brain that you're not going to die if you turn the TV off. You're not going to die if you stop scrolling because it's very possible that part of you believes that you might and so if you just step out of the way and don't judge yourself for the experience that's you creating safety and then from that place it's like okay your two feet are on the ground you're looking around realizing that there is no saber-toothed tiger now you can start to figure out what you want to do about it but I think we we rush through that first step right people are probably listening to this being like how do I stop emotionally eating <laughs> right? like how do I stop and the first thing is just become aware that you're doing it and meet yourself there with love and compassion and empathy and understanding. Of course, you're emotionally eating your human being and you are unbelievably unconditionally worthy of love and belonging and connection and all of those things exactly as you are. That is the first step. And then we could talk about what comes next. But I would start there. I, I love that. I feel like I want to go do that right now, actually. <laughs> So thank you so much, Lisa. I really feel that I'm personally walking away with like so many aha moments, so so much powerful content and things to talk about. And I'm sure this is going to serve so many people. So everybody, please check out the links, check out the program. It sounds unbelievable. And I'm so glad to have you. And I love you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me and listening to this episode. If you liked it, please make sure to leave me a review so that more beautiful humans can get to this podcast and subscribe to the show. And please do share it with a friend who would benefit. And I always love to hear from all of you on Instagram. So visit me there at marina.y.t. I share really awesome content and would love to hear your comments about the episodes. Until next time, I love you so much and I appreciate you. Have the most beautiful day.